Hello, everyone. This is Brad Harris with a quick reminder. When you run out of How It Began content, I encourage you to subscribe to my new podcast, Context. In Context, we continue to investigate what created the modern world by considering great books on the subject and distilling their insights. I hope to see you there. So, what have you had to eat today? It seems like such an innocuous question, doesn't it? Perhaps a banana at breakfast. What of it? Maybe a burger for lunch balanced by a crisp salad on the side. No big deal, right? Wrong. Unless you grow produce and rear livestock yourself, which has become an exceedingly rare occupation in developed economies, food like that on your plate is actually a very big deal. The banana, the burger and side salad, and so much more of the vast culinary repertoire we take for granted should never have reached you fresh. If it reached you at all, the tropical fruit should have arrived after its long journey across the world blackened and deflated, while the meat should have been positively furry with mold and the greens a wilted mess. But 400 years of tireless innovation has made the miracle of our perfectly fresh modern fare mundane. 400 years of trial and error and calculation and experimentation that featured, among other hardships, death by pneumonia, exploded glass vials that blinded investigators, ships wrecked in oceanic squalls, and the toil of countless horses and men whose every step might plunge them to oblivion. So many of the achievements of technology seem based on our conquest of heat. From the power of fire to mold our metals, to the internal combustion that drives us forward, to the white-hot glow of a hundred billion filaments that obliterate darkness at the flip of a switch. But there's an unsung technological hero in the saga of modernity, and that is our hard-earned command of cold. It is the technology of refrigeration that keeps us nourished day in, day out. Its on-demand cold is critical in preserving the unprecedented cornucopia of foods we eat. A vast system of refrigerated spaces extending from the insulated vault in your kitchen to farms and fisheries the world over comprises an unbroken cold chain on which our survival has come to depend. But refrigeration does so much more. It secures our comfort by conditioning indoor air, making huge cities near the equator, and skyscrapers anywhere for that matter, practical. It enables us to liquefy oxygen to ease troubled breathing and blast rockets into space. And it can even eliminate nature's resistance to electric current unleashing the phenomenon of superconductivity that may transform everything from transportation to computing. Over the past century, we've made millions of refrigerating machines that pump liquids in a cycle precisely tuned to cheat the very laws of entropy. And yet, they mostly hum away in dark corners of neglect, 
overlooked and unappreciated until the moment they stop. What did it take to create these defiers of decay in the first place? What labor of the mind empowered us to wield cold? I give you refrigeration and how it began. How it began is supported by Curiosity Stream. Over the years, I've signed up for several streaming video on demand services in search of the best content, but I always struggled to find a source of really good documentaries until I found Curiosity Stream. They offer over 1,500 science, nature, history, health, and other nonfiction titles from some of the world's best filmmakers, and their original content is fantastic as well. For example, I just finished watching a show called Nature's Mathematics, an original series that reveals the beautiful mathematical efficiency of nature. Check them out at curiositystream.com forward slash how it began, all one word, to sign up and get your first month free on any tier of their service. Again, that's curiositystream.com forward slash how it began. As the late winter storm swirled over England during that frigid winter of 1626, the snow began to fall heavily outside, causing most of the citizens of London to cower near the glow of their hearths and wait out the cold within the sphere of its warmth. Most, but not all. Revolution was in the air after all, and a natural philosopher named Francis Bacon saw the storm as an occasion for experiment. The revolution in which he was eager to participate was not one of king slang, but one of knowledge. The scientific revolution, as scholars in the future would come to call it, was then in full swing. Clever experimentalists and rebellious thinkers throughout Europe had for the past 80 years or so been blasting away at the foundations of traditional belief in order to break through superstition and discover truths about the world. From Nicholas Copernicus, who argued that the Earth revolved around the Sun in 1543, to Galileo Galilei, who confirmed Copernicus's theory with the telescope and who also established some of the first mathematical laws of motion through the 16-teens. Francis Bacon was among them as one of the most fervent thinkers of the age, filling his idle hours philosophizing about the big picture of how humanity comes to know things, how we learn about the world, what historians call epistemology, but what we may call the scientific method. Bacon was a founder of the very idea of the scientific method, but more than just philosophizing about it, he seized opportunities to put the new method into practice, and the London snowstorm of 1626 proved to be the last such opportunity he would ever have, 
for the frigid experiment killed him. As anyone who had lived in regions exposed to regular rounds of cold could see, putrefaction and decay seemed suspended by low temperatures. Among cultures the world over, the preservation of perishable food had long been achieved by merely plunging it into the snow. Preservation by drying, salting, or smoking was certainly an option, but almost always degraded the quality of food, and as we now know today, can destroy many of its nutrients. What Francis Bacon set out to do during that fateful snowfall was to systematize and even quantify the otherwise poorly understood principle of cold preservation. Hopping into his coach to travel to the farms of Highgate Hill just outside London, Bacon purchased a chicken, had it killed and plucked, and then, kneeling upon the snow with the freshly cleaned fowl, he proceeded to pack the carcass in and all around with snow, bundling the frozen bulk into a box as he hastily retreated back to his coach. He had apparently intended, in the weeks that followed, to make regular observations of the meat as the late winter blast finally thawed into spring. But as it turned out, he could not shake off the shiver that had gripped his aging body as he'd gathered the snow with his raw, reddening hands. <coughs> Within a few days, Francis was fevered and coughing. Within a few weeks, the 65-year-old scientific revolutionary was dead. Like so many of the leading experimentalists and philosophers of the age, Francis Bacon had not been motivated solely by some detached, self-indulgent curiosity, but by the practical concerns of human health and well-being. And he literally gave his life for the cause. Throughout his voluminous writings, he advocated for the utilitarian benefits of establishing a scientific method, and his ultimate experiment was undertaken at least in part to help improve the food supply system of the expanding urban zones of London. Many of the city's crowded neighborhoods had grown inhospitably filthy, and officials had begun relegating livestock farms to London's fringes in efforts to remove the most potent sources of squalor. That helped clean the streets, but it distanced early modern urbanites from some of their main sources of food. By the time prepared meats were delivered back toward the city center, much was rotted, especially in warmer seasons, and it was proving a daily struggle for thousands of people to get enough fresh food to eat. This problem proliferated throughout Europe's growing cities of the era. A tradition of nighttime deliveries of meat and produce by the light of lanterns and candles grew common, especially in summer, but the cool of pre-dawn offered only marginal benefits, and the bulk of food wasted was often greater than what people consumed. If the principles underlying how cold preserved food could be better understood, Bacon hoped they might be applied more systematically. And yet, Cold in general was a mysterious phenomenon all its own. 
humanity had firm control of fire, but not ice. People could easily summon heat with flint sparks or even with their own two hands through friction, but it seemed that cold came only with the winter and whim of nature. Beyond its most obvious practical applications, many wondered just exactly what cold was and what other yet undreamed of uses it might have. With the scientific revolution gaining momentum through the mid-1600s, the mystery of cold was investigated through ever more methodical measures. There may well have been dozens of individuals who studied cold, but like most of history, we remember the ones who left published records of what they did, and few people in the 1600s published more extensively than the English natural philosopher Robert Boyle. In the 1660s, Boyle used his family inheritance to fund the development of a set of highly sophisticated and precise experimental equipment. And a precision scale was a staple in his lineup. Cold fascinated Boyle, and so in one of his first experiments, he compared the weight of liquid and frozen water to test the widespread belief that cold was some kind of substance. Especially in places like England, where cold was so omnipresent that it seemed to physically seep into your bones, the idea that cold was a substance may have been intuitive, but there was also some valid evidence for this belief in the observation that water expanded as it froze. But Boyle's experiments proved that cold was no substance at all. Although the volume of water did increase slightly as it froze, he recorded in test after test that its weight remained exactly the same. So what accounted for the increase in volume then? Boyle hypothesized that temperature must be a measure of the movement of particles making up substances like water, not the measure of some other substance unseen. As water froze, he reasoned, its particles must be expanding or moving away from each other somehow. This was a remarkable experimental insight, the idea that volume changes might contain the key to understanding temperature, and pressure for that matter. And to study volume more precisely, Boyle turned from investigating water to air. With the help of a mechanically ingenious colleague named Robert Hooke, Boyle constructed a radically new experimental apparatus to explore the volume phenomenon further. This was his infamous air pump. No one had ever made anything like Boyle's air pump before, whose principal purpose was to simulate a vacuum in a hermetically sealed glass sphere. Revelations on the properties of air that Boyle racked up with his air pump are too numerous to list here, but one of his most important discoveries would be fundamental to the future technology of refrigeration, and that had to do with the relationship between the pressure, volume, and temperature of gases. Boyle was able to show that at a more or less constant room temperature, the volume of a gas increased as its pressure decreased, and vice versa. 
This inverse relationship between gas volume and pressure is now known as Boyle's Law. As groundbreaking as this was at the time, however, Boyle was likely frustrated that all he could do with regard to the variable of temperature was to assume that it remained constant, since he utterly lacked any precise way of measuring it. Thermometers hadn't been invented yet. Investigators had always been able to feel swings in temperature upon the skin, but scientific revolutionaries like Boyle knew that precision was the key to useful measurement, something that offered objective rather than subjective data. Today, in a world saturated with scientific instrumentation, not to mention simple conveniences like flashlights and calculators, it's hard to appreciate just how much work it took for these investigators three or four hundred years ago to make even simple discoveries. They weren't just transforming our understanding of the natural world. They were inventing the very tools of science as they went. Just asking the question, what happens to the temperature of a gas as it's compressed, was itself a brilliant philosophical innovation in the mid-1600s. But to answer such questions, leaders of the scientific revolution also had to invent the basic instruments of measurement, observation, and calculation that we take for granted. It's amusing to imagine an apocryphal outburst by Boyle, halting in his work to shout, can someone please just inventeth a thermometer already so I can complete this experiment? In fact, he turned to his colleague Robert Hooke once again, who did manage to construct a working thermometer in 1665. Unfortunately, it does not appear to have been sensitive enough to measure temperature changes in pressurized gases. And so Boyle never moved beyond having to assume a constant temperature in his experiments. Another 60 years would pass before the technology caught up with the science, and a truly modern thermometer was finally invented, this time by a young German instrument maker who was particularly adept at blowing glass, Daniel Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit built upon Boyle's own discoveries, leveraging the relationship between temperature, volume, and pressure to which Boyle had pointed the way. The technique of blowing glass precisely enough to capture and manifest that relationship plainly was the real trick of Fahrenheit's innovation. But once he perfected the process, the variable of temperature implied in Boyle's law that had eluded the man himself became quite clear. Fahrenheit filled a small reservoir at the base of his thermometer with mercury and evacuated all the air from the column above it. This way, in the relationship between temperature, volume, and pressure, it was the pressure that would remain constant as a vacuum in this case, while the temperature and volume of the mercury would fluctuate. As the temperature rose, the volume of mercury in the thermometer would expand beyond the reservoir and up into the column above. The higher the temperature, the greater the expansion, and the higher the mercury would climb. 
calibrating that expansion to specific natural benchmarks, such as the freezing point of water, enabled Fahrenheit to pinpoint a temperature scale for his thermometer in the form of standardized degrees that deviated from the benchmarks at regular intervals. The degree deviations themselves were arbitrary, but what they deviated from was not. Curiously, though, Fahrenheit did not actually use the freezing point of water to benchmark zero degrees on his scale. Rather, he pinpointed zero degrees at the coldest temperature that he could possibly create experimentally, using a mixture of ice, water, and salt. On that scale, the freezing point of regular water ended up being 32 degrees, and the boiling point was 212. In 1742, a Swedish astronomer named Anders Celsius established a scale that was, in a sense, even more puzzling since he benchmarked the boiling point of water at zero and its freezing point at 100. The man who finally rescued sensibility and inverted the Celsius scale so that it matches what we know today, with zero degrees as the freezing point of water and 100 as the boiling point, was none other than the botanist Carl Linnaeus, to whom we also owe thanks for establishing binomial nomenclature. Linnaeus was nothing if not a practical homo sapiens. Not to get too bogged down in this little tangent on thermometer innovation, but it helps to make the point about just how much work went into building up the tools of science that were needed in the first place before the actual frontiers of knowledge could progress. Boyle needed a way to measure temperature precisely back in 1665. Linnaeus perfected such a device in 1745, 80 years later. So, modern thermometer, check. Better late than never. Indeed, thermometers became the hot new technology of the mid-1700s, which enabled the science of cold to really accelerate. A big breakthrough occurred shortly thereafter in the 1750s, when an English physician named Matthew Dobson noticed the chilling effect of evaporation on his thermometer. Originally setting out to test the temperature effects of combining various volatile fluids, Dobson couldn't help but see that dramatic drops in temperature always showed up on his thermometer after he removed it from test fluids. Intuitively connecting the observation with the common experience of feeling cold after emerging from a bath, Dobson realized that evaporating fluids might have the capacity to carry heat away with them. So, curious what might happen, he set up a continuous cycle of evaporation, spraying the base bulb of his thermometer with alcohol at regular intervals, allowing enough time for total evaporation in between each spray, and to his astonishment, the temperature reading on his thermometer just kept falling, eventually plunging well past the freezing point of water. He summoned his mentor, the Scottish chemist William Cullen, to help him organize a more thorough scientific investigation. To accelerate evaporation and thereby enhance the effect, 
Cullen suggested that they conduct further tests with the thermometer placed in a vacuum. Sure enough, the alcohol evaporated at a much faster rate within the low pressure of the vacuum, and the temperature drops recorded on the thermometer were not only faster, but greater, achieving even lower temperatures through each spray cycle. They quickly built up ever more elaborate experimental designs, going so far as to test whether or not the vacuum-enhanced evaporation could produce ice. It did. Small quantities, inconsistently, which always melted away nearly as fast as it formed. But they actually made ice. The year was 1756, and Dobson and Cullen had succeeded in creating the world's first refrigerator. Many other investigators managed to replicate Dobson's and Cullen's results, not least of which Benjamin Franklin in America. Yet experimental refrigeration remained extremely limited. Brief moments of artificial freezing that tantalized experimenters with the possibility of humanity's power to wield cold. But as fast as they made the ice, nature unmade it. Some radical new technology would be needed for us to preserve cold against nature's covetous monopoly. Some new mechanical might that Dobson and his cohort would probably have believed was utterly impossible. But fortunately for us, they would have been wrong. For as it turned out, we were right on the precipice of the Industrial Revolution. The problem of food preservation that Francis Bacon had confronted nearly two centuries earlier, meanwhile, had only grown worse. Urban populations kept growing, and burgeoning settlements along more tropical latitudes in the Americas, from South Carolina to Cuba, were maturing into commercial hubs in their own right. In many of these contexts, cold was coveted more than ever before, and even where it might have seldom occurred to people to use ice for food preservation or air conditioning, entrepreneurs learned that cold could quickly be transformed from a novelty to a necessity. Undoubtedly, the most prominent natural ice entrepreneur was an American businessman named Frederick Tudor. He began shipping blocks of ice harvested from a lake on his family's farm in Massachusetts to the Caribbean as early as 1806. And by the 1840s, New England ice was being shipped all over the world. The capital costs of the enterprise were enormous. And even as the most successful natural ice merchant in history, Tudor suffered years of heavy financial loss along with extreme stress brought on by the unyielding complications of coordinating harvesting teams in New England, overseas shipping, and ice storage at every port of sale, all against the excruciating drip-by-drip -drip meltdown of his product. Most of the time, he was lucky if half of the heavy cargo laboriously loaded onto his ships in Boston reached its destination still frozen. And to make matters even worse for the natural ice industry, pollution and disease commonly clung to the merchandise. 
in one particularly sensational episode that occurred relatively late in the game of the natural ice trade in 1902, a full-blown outbreak of typhoid fever followed the sale of ice harvested from a river in New York, which officials managed to trace back to a raw sewage line whose main outlet lay just a few hundred yards from where the blocks had been cut. Overall, the natural ice business was a frigid, raw, dangerous mess. Harvesting teams of horses and men risked their lives each time they set out on the ice. Backs were broken, fingers and toes frozen solid. The holds of ships in which the ice was packed amid heaps of soggy sawdust grew fetid with mold unless scrupulously cleaned on a regular basis. Nonetheless, the huge commercial demand for cold lured dozens of businessmen to attempt to overcome all of these challenges. And there was about a hundred-year window of time when the natural ice trade did pretty well. Frederick Tudor inaugurated the business by selling a single ship's hold worth of ice in 1806, 130 tons. Ten years later, his sales topped 1,200 tons, and at the natural ice industry's peak in the 1880s, America alone was consuming well over 5 million tons of natural ice each year. But by then, the technology of refrigeration was rapidly catching up thanks to the power of the Industrial Revolution's hot steam. The first person who appears to have connected the scientific breakthrough of evaporative cooling with the technological potential of the Industrial Revolution was an engineer from America named Oliver Evans. As early as 1805, Evans imagined that instead of experimentalists tediously hand-pumping air out of a closed space and spraying a volatile liquid into it, a steam engine could do it all automatically in a continuous, closed-loop cycle. With each upward stroke of the steam engine's piston, a vacuum would be created in the piston shaft, simultaneously sucking in the volatile liquid and evaporating it. Then, on the downstroke, the piston would recompress that evaporated vapor back into a liquid simultaneously pumping it out of the shaft to circulate back around through the cycle. In a well-designed steam engine, a volatile liquid could be vacuum evaporated hundreds of times a minute, Evans believed, creating a powerful industrial-scale refrigerator that might be capable of producing huge quantities of ice, at least in theory. No steam engine in 1805 was powerful or precise enough to put Evans' theory into practice, and in any event, his concept proved premature. The groundwork for the science behind refrigeration relating pressure, volume, and temperature that Evans dreamed of exploiting had certainly been laid by investigators like Boyle, Dobson, and Cullen, but there was still much more to be learned before refrigeration could become truly practical. Evaporative cooling seemed pretty straightforward, 
But the actual behavior of the molecular particles in gases and liquids undergoing pressure changes remained poorly understood, and until that changed, engineers would not be able to design effective refrigerators. Although that didn't stop them from trying. Refrigerator patents started flowing out of America, England, and Germany as early as the 1830s. But it wasn't until the 1850s that scientists gained a firm enough grasp of thermodynamics, the science of energy and heat, to enable engineers to mass-produce cold. After 200 years of learning about cold mostly through experimentation, the critical advance that finally made refrigeration practical was achieved through math. In 1852, a pair of powerhouse mathematical thinkers, the Scotsman James Joule and William Thompson, used the equations of thermodynamics to refine our understanding of exactly what was happening to the particles of liquids as they evaporated into gases, and why that event produced cold. In turn, Joule's and Thompson's work offered much more sophisticated insight into the temperature effects of molecular compression and expansion in general, especially with regard to the phase shifts between liquid and gas. Basically, the key mathematical insight of their work revealed that whenever the particles of a gas were compressed by squeezing them into a smaller volume, the mechanical energy of that compression was transferred to the gas particles, forcing them to move faster and faster and causing them to collide with one another more and more, which caused the particles to give off their gained energy in the form of heat. The opposite happened when gas particles were decompressed, like when exposed to a vacuum, for example. As the decompression forced gas particles to expand away from each other, the particles, Joule and Thompson realized, were actually doing work to overcome their mutual attraction and separate, which slowed down their motion and caused them to lose energy, making the gas colder. Bingo! All the way back to Boyle, the relationship between pressure and temperature and volume was observed, but never understood. Now it was, and in great detail. The natural evaporative cooling effect that Dobson and Cullen had experimentally stumbled onto a century earlier was just the tip of the refrigeration iceberg. Jules and Thompson's thermodynamic analysis revealed the possibility of much more effective and efficient refrigeration cycles through more precisely engineered expansion and compression. Within a decade, engineers were using Jules and Thompson's theoretical work to guide the construction of refrigerators that used ammonia as the refrigerant, and that could produce over half a ton of ice per day. It didn't take much longer to hone in on the basic refrigerator design that has been built into the heart of our cooling machines ever since. 
1871, it was the German engineer Carl Linde who designed a refrigerator for a local beer brewer, no less, that set the enduring standard. Right, so turns out that history shows beer and science are natural allies. Although modifications in the type of refrigerant used, the design of pumps and pipes, and the size and precision of the engineering has certainly evolved in the intervening 145 years, Linda's fridge probably has the best historical claim to being the first truly modern refrigerator. Synthesizing all of the knowledge that investigators had rallied, from Boyle and Fahrenheit to Dobson, Cullen, and even Oliver Evans, here's how Linda put it all together. Ammonia, the refrigerant Linda used, was pumped around in a closed cycle of pipes. To start the refrigerating cycle, the ammonia flowed into the cycle pump as a gas, where it was compressed by the pump into a much smaller volume, forcing it to turn very hot. And in Linda's design, the pressure was high enough to force the ammonia gas to turn into ammonia liquid. At this point in the cycle, the hot liquid flowed through a sort of corrugated pipe array to give off as much of its heat as possible to the surrounding environment, with the high pressure maintained to keep the ammonia in liquid state. Next, the now somewhat cooled ammonia liquid flowed through an expansion valve, the key step in producing cold. Just like a compressed air can you might use to blow dust off your keyboard, the expansion valve forced the ammonia liquid to undergo a dramatic increase in volume, which resulted in a correspondingly dramatic drop in its pressure, and therefore, a dramatic drop in its temperature, just as Joule and Thompson predicted. The tepid ammonia liquid transformed into cold ammonia gas. And this cold gas flowed on through a second corrugated pipe array surrounding the beer, keeping it nice and frosty. The cycle pump sucked the ammonia gas all the way through this corrugated array and back through compression to be converted once more into a hot liquid so the cycle could begin again. As long as the compressor pump ran, this conveyor belt of cold would too. In the 1870s, compressor pumps were driven by the power of steam engines. Through the early 20th century, they would start to be driven by electricity. Either way, we could enjoy the taste of the Rockies. But we could do so much more. We could solve the problem that Francis Bacon had died trying to solve some 250 years earlier. We could wield the power of cold at our whim to preserve food for however long it took to travel from the farm to the city. We could expand the food supply network of any city or any domestic kitchen for that matter to encircle the globe, bringing bananas from Indonesia to the breakfast plates of San Francisco, bringing beef from Argentina and spinach from China to the lunch tables of New York and London. 
we could end some of the suffering of countless livestock who had for decades through the mid-1800s been corralled alive and terrified into train cars on their way from the American prairies to the stockyards of Chicago, where they often arrived a hundred pounds lighter, having been too afraid on the journey to eat. Keeping the animals alive had been the only way to keep their meat fresh, but no more. Refrigeration also enabled us to protect ourselves from the pollution and disease borne on so many of the blocks of natural ice. We could slash the amount of food wasted from rot and decay, and thereby reduce the amount of virgin land surrendered each year for new agriculture as the human population kept on growing. Refrigeration revolutionized our relationship with the natural world, empowering us to transcend traditional limits and keep carrying on with the work of modernity. Refrigeration remained mostly an industrial affair through the first couple of decades of the 20th century, leveraging for a time the natural ice trade's existing commercial infrastructure. Artificial ice was produced in centralized factories and then cut and distributed to homes across the country. Just like the milkman brought bottles of dairy, the iceman delivered a block or two a week to be installed in the icebox. In 1925, only about 1% of American homes had a real refrigerator. But only 10 years later, in 1935, 30% of homes had one. In 1940, it was 60%. And by 1950, they were ubiquitous. Just like computers would do in the future, refrigeration spread as the size of the machines shrank. And since the same technology used to refrigerate an insulated food vault could be used to refrigerate the rooms of a building, air conditioning grew common by mid-century, too. It was first adopted by movie theaters in the 19-teens as an added comfort to attract viewers. But air conditioning also made possible the heightening of modern skylines. The practicality of skyscrapers is commonly attributed to the invention of safe elevators, but air conditioning was undoubtedly more important. Due to high winds and extreme shifts in pressure, openable windows in a skyscraper are not safe, and no elevator, however swift, could have persuaded people to travel up into the stifling temperatures of upper floors that would have resulted had air conditioning not overcome the greenhouse effect of hundreds of windows. Without refrigeration, then, cities as we know them would be impossible for multiple reasons. But the technology of refrigeration is not done developing. The 20th century may have made it domestic, but the 21st century is making it positively otherworldly. Through extreme cycles of refrigeration, scientists have succeeded in liquefying not only oxygen, but hydrogen and helium at temperatures barely above absolute zero. And in this deepest region of cold, we are discovering an entirely new scientific frontier, 
where liquids and even electrons seem to defy the laws of physics and flow without being affected by friction, resistance, and even gravity. Scientists call this superfluidity and superconductivity, and just like Cullen and Dobson saw in their discovery of evaporative cooling 260 years ago, scientists today see in superconductivity the possibility of a radically different future, where everything from electricity to trains may travel with unprecedented efficiency along supercooled conduits that would allow us to cheat the usual laws of nature all over again. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to this episode of How It Began. For more information, including a select bibliography, visit howitbegan.com. If you haven't already, I encourage you to subscribe to How It Began on Apple Podcasts. The majority of new people will find this show there, and the more subscribers I have, the more visible How It Began will be. So it really helps me out when you take a moment to push that subscribe button. I'd like to mention something else, too. How It Began is free for you to listen to, and it always will be. However, if you feel you can, your direct support would be deeply appreciated. Contributions from listeners like you help me to keep ads to a minimum while partnering only with sponsors whose product or service is truly and uniquely appealing. I'm grateful for any support you would be comfortable providing, so if you're interested, please check out my support page on my website. Thank you again. I'm Brad Harris. So long.